Hey everyone, welcome to Civil Offense. My name is Ahmed Mali, and after a short hiatus, we're back with two of our recurring chronic guests. We have uh, Garen over here, who has been on the show quite a few times. How you doing, Garen? I am. I'm doing good. How about you guys? Good. I'm good. And we have our boy Ignis. <laughs> yeah, I finally settled on a name. I wish to be not but one light to one fuse to destroy the mechanisms by which we are enslaved. And today we're going to be Amazing. talking about a few topics. You know, uh, you know national divorce is uh, big right now. Michael Malice was on Joe Rogan talking about it. Uh, and Joe was pushing back a little bit on that. You have people in New Hampshire, uh, especially the Libertarian Party over there, pushing for it. Uh, we want to talk about some sort of strategy and methodology in this because I know we've had you both on the show talking about a couple of different things. Uh, Ashton, for one, talking about national divorce as part of the strategy. Uh, Garen, on the other hand, very against politics in general, uh, more so on the agorist side of uh, you know counter economics and being anti political. And we also want to talk about uh, something you guys got into in the comment section of one of our last podcasts, having to do with uh, social progressivism and wokeism. So we have quite a bit on the table. Um, and we may do a little bit of trolling at the end of this. So yeah, let's get into national divorce. I want to start uh, with Ashton, just sort of going over what we've talked about before, any new thoughts you may have on that, uh, just sort of talking about why it's helpful, uh, in your opinion, to libertarianism to have this sort of breaking up of states. Um, I didn't know, uh, so Malice was on Joe Rogan's podcast recently? Yes. Okay. And he was talking about Texas uh, because he's he also talked about this on Glenn Beck's show around the election. And he's like, um, I, I, I don't give a, you know, F uh, about the rest of the United States. Let's just have Texas uh, be its own thing. And then I, I think it was like Alaska goes back to Russia and Hawaii is just its own state. <laughs> uh, weird. OK. Uh, but what I would say is the primary uh, focus of national divorce is decentralization uh and that is to decrease the utility that the state has to um enact in its edicts so if you had a thousand Liechtensteins across uh europe sure it wouldn't be libertarian paradise it would not be um conducive towards actual liberty you may have increased utility but the state would have decreased utility to, to enforce its edicts because it would not have like there would be several states so each individual state would not have the power of the u.s military to uh or each individual military to uh enforce its edicts to come in like the national guard to uh oppress the people or be the mechanism by which people are enslaved uh in so this is that sense what you say? I was just going to say this has sort of been uh, something that, you know, people have been talking about, uh, like how it would happen and all that. Um, so the advocacy is for what? For states to pass legislation to break off or for the federal government, like within Congress to say, OK, this is how we're going to plan it. I mean, I doubt that the federal government is going to be like, OK, it's done. We're going to just give up power because that's never the direction that the state um, acts towards. But uh the a state level secession i think would increase utility this is not about um increasing liberty liberty directly because for there to be an increase of liberty directly there would be a re have to be a recognition of self-ownership would we, which would be the abolishment of the state the state is going to do that the best we can do is increase utility so that we may bring about um an increase in liberty itself uh which would be the abolishment or privatization of the state uh but the uh, national divorce dialogue, I think, is good in that the focus is instead towards decentralization rather than centralization or any other subject that increases the state's power. 
All right. So, Garen, uh, I know you have your own take on this and sort of it's one that isn't talked about as much. But, yeah, I'd like to hear your take on that and also any sort of comments you had on what Ashton just said. Uh, yeah, I mean, my 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 only problem with secessionism would really just be um, pretty much the same critique that I have of politics generally. Um, and that would be that the state essentially is, um, you know, and, and this is something that I think a lot of libertarians don't really talk about is that the state essentially um is is an organization model that fundamentally has a defined set of interests and the problem is that the state does not act around any kind of set um uh prescriptive ideology or um or it, it it's not bound to any kind of political decree so the problem fundamentally is that secessionism it, it, ha it has essentially the exact same problems as almost any other political strategy in the sense that it, it doesn't do anything to subvert the state's fiat property claims. All it really does is, is essentially the state is making a decree um, for a, a, a part of itself essentially to become a, a legally separate entity, even though essentially the the actual state in question who made the decree is not only one doing so um specifically to manufacture the the um the political agents uh within its own interests and territories um but it also has de facto control over the actual you know seceded state in question um so like the notion that i think that a secessionist movement um is really a, a step toward liberty is is I, I guess doubtful at best, um, and I guess it's why I, I consider the Agora strategy to be probably the most viable, um, because it, it essentially is the only strategy which allows people to um, uh, to network in areas um, where not only the state doesn't have control, um, but allows people to develop uh, techniques and technologies that undermine the state's ability to control resources in the first place when um when basically asking the state to make a different decree um changing the decrees that the state makes for example like privatization um doesn't do anything to subvert the state's ability to make those decrees in the first place which you know if we're looking at i guess what i would consider a libertarian strategy to be i think that should probably be our first priority i mean i definitely like have a lot of um i guess sympathy toward the secessionists in the sense that um, I think, like, I don't necessarily see it as, like, a more viable strategy than, I guess, other traditional forms of political action, um, but I, but I definitely have sympathy toward it in the sense that they're, like, seemingly trying something new, um, you know, getting away from the LP and stuff, but it, it essentially, to me, has the exact same problems, um, if we just look at how the state functions and operates. Yeah, and I'd like to add to, uh, your last point there, uh, well, sort of, uh, in that, you know, th this community based sort of, um, you know, strategy is really good because what I see in the appeal to national divorce is the idea that, uh, you know, this, this liberal plurality, uh, it, it just isn't working in the sense that like, you can't just be, um, you know, in the same community under the same rules as people that have no commonality as far as their, their view of, of truth and their view of what, you know, what's right and wrong. Uh, I, I don't want to be living next to people that are transing the kids. Right. So obviously when I hear like, Oh, uh, these people are going to go to their own location where I don't have to live under those rules and I can live the way I want to with people that align with my views and don't want to do that to the children. <laughs> uh, it, it really um, 
sort of, you know, appeals to that mindset of saying just like people want to live with others that share their values. So when you come at it from a perspective of, well, the issue with that is that more so like you don't really have control over what these political subdivisions are going to be. It's just more so uh, you have to sort of like network in your own fashion. I I really do understand that. Uh, Ashton, I did want to hear your thoughts on what Garen had to say, though. Uh, Right. And I might have forgot like uh, some of them, but I think I've got the ones that are important. I do want to say that the state is not one actor. The uh, only individuals act. So only uh, heads of state or agents of the state can act. And each of those do have their own ethics with which they abide by. There's no it's not necessarily true that those ethics are consistent in any sense. Uh, It is usually the case that they will sell their soul uh, and do whatever they can or will. Uh, to get power such as Kamala Harris banging everybody so that she may uh, get to the higher office that she has achieved. Um, and then I do want to say that in the course of secession, uh, the, the original state does not keep direct say over the seceding state. Um, I think it would tend to be the case that the seceding state uh, leaves and the original state um is just not interested enough to keep them. Uh, it may lead to direct war, as we've seen in the past, but if it does not lead to direct war, uh, which would be the ideal outcome, it would just be because uh, the original state is too disinterested in either the optics or whatever power play they're going for uh, to go for outright war. And in the only and the only sense in which they would have a say is if there's the threat of state on state-on-state violence Uh, and then uh, i would say the last point or one of the last points about privatization would say it does undermine the ability for the state to uh, enact its edicts the state can make all the edicts it wants if it does not have any enforcement mechanism uh, for which the edicts can be enforced such as with uh, i think it was the french king and uh, the colony of acadia uh, the king has all these taxes and such like that, but if the if it's too expensive for the king to send over tax collectors to bring it in the money from Acadia, they just ended up not paying it. They lived relatively uh, anarchical. Um, and so privatization in the real sense that we have uh, in uh, hopping, I would say, strategy would be to privatize all public property and if the state had if the in this case local government has no mechanism by which to enforce its regulations through local police or enforce tax collection through local police uh, then it has no means by which it can enact its edicts that does not address the state and federal level but for the state and federal level to enforce their edicts they must send in state troopers they must send in the national guard in which case that's extremely expensive and the moment they leave you can just go right back to it yeah, so I think th- to address the question of how the state acts and you know how the individuals within it act, you look at you have to look at sort of like the incentives and the power structures in place. So you you have you know leadership roles with certain um, allotted you know powers uh, to use against other members and sort of like um, create a structure in which people are fundraising for other candidates that you know they don't really care about their ideology as much as the, as long as the party is the same. They don't really care about the policy specifically a lot of the time, uh, and then you have um, yeah, fundraising is a goal, but then you also have like, you know, moving up as a goal. So you have a lot of, um, grooming politically, uh, happening and you have a lot of, uh, sort of like log rolling and legislation just being exchanged, uh, 
it's it's not mostly about what these candidates are looking for specifically when it comes to uh you know the their ideology it's more so like they're trying to get benefit out of it they're looking at the state for that and and in it you just have this sort of like structure of uh legislation passing just based on uh you know evil interest all the time <laughs> uh garen i wanted to know what uh, you thought of that sort of like address uh ashton's view of how the state operates and then uh maybe just address some of the other points he made after that yeah i mean i guess i could probably just point out firstly with the whole you know, secessionist point is is that um you know you can point to, I guess this like the state in certain instances you know not having control, um over the seceded territory. Well, first of all, um the question of course is, um if the state is only allowed to secede because the you know because this is a decree or fiat decree by the by the actual state, um it's pretty clear that not only does the does the state who the you know the seceded state seceded from, sorry, word twist, but um, it, it seems pretty clear that not only do they actually have influence over the policies um, that they can influence uh, of the like other state that, that seceded, right? Um, but even if they don't, um, again, number one, that's a, that's a deliberate policy by the actual government. So the, so the state, um, so the larger state sees no interest um essentially in making that smaller government a puppet state um and then so so i i don't really see that as necessarily subversive number one and then number two even if they do um again this is this is still not only another state that still has the you know the policies um i i guess the 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 the, pol the, the policies of another state that um you know is still acting within the other state's interests, um, but then again, if this is not the case, then of course there, you know, is is war, and there's there are problems with that too. Um, but I guess to address sort of the point with like, oh, well, we'll, we'll uh, you know, the state doesn't act; individuals do. Well, of course, individuals act, um, but the problem is that essentially every single, you know, every single action performed by the politicians um, has influence over. Ha has direct um like every single politician not only has uh like direct level levels of leverage placed over them and financial incentives that influence their behavior um but essentially um every single end that can be furthered or is furthered while you are working as an agent of the state can really only be an end which furthers the state the state's ability to function and if you're not fulfilling the state's ability to function then you're not an agent of the state um and this is sort of something that I think a lot of libertarians like fail to touch on because I think analyzing the state um, like from this power oppression dichotomy from this class analysis not only gives us, you know, a lot more explanatory power toward, you know, how the state acts toward, towards us, um, but also allows us to potentially identify what actions the state could take in the future and what means we could take that would subvert the state, you know, going forward. Um, and I think the reason, you know, potentially why a lot of libertarians tend to push back a lot on this sort of analysis of the state, uh, you know, tends to be that most libertarians tend to support political means at this point. Um, and this is something that wasn't really that common in the libertarian movement until Murray Rothbard came along. Um, but it's definitely something that I've been, you know, very concerned about. And, and Konkin, you know, obviously was one of the only people concerned about it as well um 
But uh, yeah, I guess I, th I think those two points should probably suffice for now. You identified agents of the state are those who are fulfilling the state's ability to function. Um, and I would say that this is a miscommunication and where we're using the same term for two different things. Because so I would just say an agent of the state is anybody who is hired under the employee of the state. And that is not necessarily the same as the set of all individuals who are f fulfilling the state's ability to function. Because I would say that is a pretty broad definition, and that would include individual activists who petition for the state to exist and do its thing. So most liberals are the, these supposed agents of the state, whereas you could have um, a rather ineffective you could say libertarian politician who is under the employee of the state, but who does not act towards the state interests and the state's ability to function. He would then not be an agent of the state. Um, and I, I don't think it, I don't think it's coming from any bad faith. I think it's just a, um, an unintentional equivocation of terms because of our different backgrounds. Um, but I would say that uh, not every action can be needs to be towards the obtainment of the abolition of the state itself it can be towards the attainment of increased utility and that can come in the form of increased utility in terms of we are better able to get away with counter economic action uh, because uh, liberty while we have not obtained liberty it is not the only measure by which our society is preferable to live in i would rather live in america than live in the dprk uh, just because of the increased utility that we have here. Both us and the citizens of the DPRK are not free. We do not have like full liberty. We are denied self-ownership. Uh, but we have much, much greater utility here than we do there. So I find it preferable to live here, and I want to increase the utility as much as possible. And once you have increased utility to the extent that you can obtain liberty, liberty sh should be obtained. Okay, yeah, I mean, I would just say, um, I guess this point is that, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't, I'm not denying that different states are preferable to live in. Um, I just don't think that, um, that I guess political action influences what the state does. The state is fundamentally an economic firm. And the problem with that is that, is, is that we can point to certain things that the state needs to, you know, actually use to be able to sustain itself. Um, and the problem is that if the state are if the state is not performing these actions, um, it is not continuing to function as a state. Um, so I guess I guess my um, my my only really problem would simply be with the whole you know increasing utility line because again, um, I think this sort of stems from like a fundamental I guess misconception of how of how governments operate. Um, you know, so yeah, would I rather live in the U.S. than the Soviet Union for sure? But the U.S. and the Soviet Union have completely different economies, and that's why their states function differently. They have different populations, different uh, demographics, um, different uh, nations near them, different, different everything, really. Yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to touch on that uh, exact point in saying that, yeah, we have increased utility here because of the economy, but... Uh, when it comes to increasing utility, is that something that can even be done through elections? Is that something, you know, how much of a, a sway do elections have in how government operates in the first place? How much uh, do states influence elections and parties in the first place to uh, make it so that, you know, people can't have influence in government? Um, that's sort of like, you know, some of the questions we have here. I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, where you guys would align when it comes to uh, strategy as far as it, as it uh, relates to elections. We kind of got a good idea of that here. Um, but 
Ashton, I kind of want to know more on, uh, you know, what you think the role of elections would be in achieving liberty. And then I kind of want to hear Garen uh, just maybe refute that a bit afterward and just talk about what he thinks would be uh, we'd be better off doing. Uh, hey, thank you for giving me the little. Yeah, little, exactly. Little just there. setting me up. Just set yeah. me up to get a struck. That's unfair. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I'm just saying, like, I want to hear counterpoints to, to what's said, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. you don't disagree. I know you don't agree already. So it, it would be good to hear. Ashton, I would love to hear your best steelman <laughs> argument, strongest points ever given for why elections will save us all. I would love to hear it. And I would love to hear exactly why we can get. <laughs> No, Go no, ahead. no. That's not, that's not what it is cut, cutting you off there. Um, <laughs> I would say, I, I, w- I would separate um, elections on the level of centralization. On the local scale, uh, you could, libertarians could win elections. It, uh, just because somebody has the name of libertarian doesn't necessarily mean that they can, um, that they are going to bring about libertarian ends. It could be like the big tent libertarian that includes classical liberals and other statists. Uh, and that's not necessarily what we want to aim for. Uh, and then also this affects local level policy of property regulations of a few taxes, and then um, possibly some licensure laws and everything like that. Not necessarily licensure laws, uh, but I'd say that is the level by which most enforcements are done through that local level police uh as well uh and i'd say that is what we really should aim for because that's level by which uh towns can be privatized not necessarily cities uh but on i would i would include the city level and the state level in the same aspect to where those are populations that are so large that it is unlikely that libertarians could win elections in any degree and those levels are which uh, you can have at the state house some libertarians get in, uh, raise the alarm, like talk about increasing the utility of certain issues such as uh, constitutional carry and anything like that. But no real large increase of utility will be made towards liberty. Um, and then on the uh, federal level, on the national level, I do not think that any election can be made uh, to increase utility other than, uh, and similar to the state, of just raising the profile of libertarianism as the pure ideology rather than um, the big tent. Because on the national level, no libertarian is going to win the election, so we shouldn't be trying to appeal to like try to win votes for moderates. No, we should be using this as an opportunity, as a soapbox, as a loudspeaker to be as unapologetically correct as possible uh, when it comes to the ethics of liberty, when it comes to correct economics and being the Austrian school. Um, And I think that can create more libertarians, which uh, more true libertarians, which is always a good thing. So real quick, can I just ask why you think that uh, the federal level is something that isn't, uh, you know, redeemable as far as being able to elect libertarians that are going to change things as, um, but instead, you know, like local levels have a lot more chance of being changed? I would just say it would be the matter of scale specifically, because you can convince, say a few hundred people to support you in an election most people don't really care about their local election elections uh they may in the future but it is more achievable with the amount of resources that we have at our disposal 
whereas the federal level election, there's so many entrenched entrance interests from business to all sorts of any every single lobbying interest to funnel millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into these elections. Who knows how much goes on where we can't see it. Um, but uh, all of this is done to keep the current powers to stay in power, to keep the permanent state around, and to uh, prevent any change towards the increase of utility for, uh, I'm going to say, the average person or just the increase of utility generally, and certainly not the uh, recognition of self-ownership. All right. Yeah, and I guess I would sort of ask, I, I guess, um, be, because it seems like you, you seem to understand, I guess, to a degree, the extent to which the state, um, I guess, operates on the federal level. Um, but I guess what does size necessarily have to do, I mean, besides lobbying, but again, um, I guess, do you think that, um, do you think that smaller states don't receive like lobbying funds or like are have interests from their local giant corporations? I would say that the opposition, the scale of opposition that they, that one faces in facing them, or sorry, just jumbled that completely. Uh, but the degree to which one is opposed by these interests is much less. Uh, local level elections, and I'm not talking about cities, I'm talking about like small towns, rural areas, uh, probably not even suburban areas, but uh, rural areas. You have maybe the big business that's around that uh, almost everybody works at, say. Uh, they can be a lobbying interest, but they only throw how much money at it? Uh, less than a million, probably. On cities levels, you get to millions tens of millions but on town levels you get to levels of wealth that can be achieved through crowdfunding between libertarians and through grassroots action through uh all the traditional um political means of door knocking and everything like that well i guess i would just say that like yeah it's true that smaller jurisdictions receive again smaller levels of you know big corporate donations but again they are also smaller territories too and i guess the thing that i'd like to mention too is that i think even i i think even this the notion that you know cor even if even if no corporations were funding these you know small jurisdictions i wouldn't really see that as like a I wouldn't really make that like distinction as to, you know, how the state operates or how, um, I guess, repressive the state's going to be. Um, and this is sort of, I guess, going back to the, like the narrative that I always found kind of ridiculous, like even kind of after I became a libertarian, um, sort of the notion that like, oh, um, corporations with all their money are controlling the state. Well, they have to subordinate themselves to the government you know like the government is the agency that literally has all the guns all the resources they can they could line these corporations up against the wall if they wanted to um so you know the notion that like these corporations control the government or have an influence in the government i mean they definitely have coinciding interests and that's something that like i have always um tried to point out i don't think it i think it goes beyond mere corporatism it's the entire like i guess capitalist infrastructure and um and i guess like to clarify like when when i'm referring to capitalism i'm not referring to free markets i'm um i guess right. the difference between so i guess 
one thing that I think I'd like to point out too, and this is a little bit getting off topic, but um, I think something for like clarification that we could probably have on is that um, Agora specifically make a distinction between markets and capitalism. We don't, we don't um, see them as interchangeable synonyms. I mean, we understand kind of why, um, but we see like ANCAPs and Marxists um, who both make the same problem. Um, they don't distinguish between, you know, the current capitalist infrastructure and actual freed markets, you know, um, uh, um, disassociated from private property. And to clarify, like when the earlier libertarians and like agorists are referring to private property, we're not referring to, you know, actual Rothbardian homesteading. Um, we're referring to, you know, fiat degrees by the state. So I'm sure you, you do know that, but I just wanted to kind of clarify that so we both have a bit, a bit more of an understanding. But yeah, if you wanted to uh, bounce your thoughts off that. Um, I would say, uh, and Ahmed shared with me this video, uh, a Roderick T. Long video where he describes capitalism as an anti-concept, where you could say um, there are two meanings within capitalism, which would be uh, free markets and then the system of economics which predominates the West today. Uh, and you have the anarcho-capitalists say that capitalism is the free market itself, uh, and then you have the socialists, and, among others, who say that capitalism is just the um, system of, of economics which predominates the West today. And it is really a uh, problem because it is... To anarcho-capitalists, um, it is a definition born out of constructing a dichotomy between capitalism and socialism, such as in Hoppe's uh, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, whereas um, the other meaning is more of a descriptive definition of how people use it. Uh, if we were to describe, if anarcho-capitalists were to describe um, our current economic system, uh, depending on your definitions, it would be fascism, it would be uh, corporatism, it would be uh, neo-mercantilism, among others, uh, uh, or just simply socialism, uh, as Hoppe probably would. Uh, but uh, I agree that, uh, especially in conversations such as this, we should define our terms on the outset so that communication is clear, but I do not think anarcho-capitalist or libertarian movement generally should necessarily um, give up the optics war around um, capitalism as a term. Well, yeah, I don't really see it as giving up uh, like an optics war. Um, I'm not I'm not adopting it because I like really want to convince, you know, left wingers. I, you know, um, I'm not really I wouldn't consider myself a left winger myself, even though, you know, a lot of agorists fit into that sphere um, because we don't support, you know, capitalism or any other economic system um but i guess the problem that i would i i would disagree with long in the sense that um i like it is an anti-concept depending on how it's used um but i personally think that words should actually you know try to have meanings and i think the 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 the, the term that i think um i guess the way to describe capitalism makes the most sense to me is essentially an economic system um, based on private property rights. And, you know, you would probably find that, you know, very, uh, very libertarian. 
Um, I would have problems with that in the sense that when we're when we're referring to private property, well, what are you meaning? Are you meaning um, you know actual homesteading, or are you referring to fiat decrees by the state? And if we're looking at a total economic system, which of course you know economic systems themselves are uh, products of you know political planning, um, but if we're looking at uh, economies that aren't you know socialist in the sense that the state doesn't directly own the means of production and the corporations, whereas distinguished from a capitalist economy where the decrees are still made by a third party. And yeah, they're not technically owned by the state, but they're essentially de facto planned in everything but name. Um, every single uh, resource within a capitalist economy um, is essentially directed toward um, toward the state's interests. Um, even in, in order to even become a business, you have to get a license from the state. So um, basically, at any time, the state can not only set, shut down your business, um, but the state will do so if you're not functioning within their interests. So really, um, I see you know the distinction between a capitalist and a socialist political economy is basically whether the state at that time wants to run on the efficiency mode. Um, let the let the capital be managed by, you know, de facto managed by third parties um, or have the state directly manage it. But regardless, um, I still see them as, as, as essentially not as distinct as a lot of libertarians see it. Um, and I think that there is a big problem in, I guess, um, I guess referring to the current system as, you know, oh, just corporatism when a f when a few businesses um, are are funded by the state. Like, no, this is an entire this is an an entire economic system. This is an entire uh, this is an entire economy um, that can only survive through fiat property norms or private property norms. Um, you can only you can only have property in the capitalist you know political economy. Um, if the state decrees that you can, unless of course you're in a, you know, in a black or gray market, which in, in that sense, I would say that agorism is the true, you know, privatization in that sense. Um, if we're talking about it in the actual Rothbardian terms, where you're not having this third party decree um, uh, dictating what people can do with their property. So um, sorry if that was a lot there, but, you know, yeah, I tend to uh, ramble a bit. Uh, I agree with some parts, disagree with others. I would say capitalism don't necessarily have a concise definition, um, but I would say uh, I'll relate it to other things. It may not be how Hoppe defines it, uh, but I would say it's the um, it's a market without an anti-productive class. The productive class is made up of uh, producers, traders, and homesteaders. The anti-productive class is made up of those which expropriate property from producers, traders, and homesteaders, the productive class, and those who petition for uh, said expropriation. Um, in such case, then you don't have uh, the aggression in terms of the expropriation. It may it, it may be more than that, but I would say the because uh, I want to get away from just defining it from based off of aggression. But I guess that may be a better definition of uh, markets without aggression and. Aggression would be properly defined in the um, sense of argumentation ethics, which I'm starting to write pieces on specifically in defining the terms. But uh, these fiat property norms are forms of aggression. Uh, expropriation, theft is obviously a, a 
compelled expropriation is obviously aggression. Uh, all matter of states, denial, self-ownership is aggression, everything like that. So you would have a, it is the description of what would probably be called uh, counter economics, except it doesn't relate to any existence of a state by definition. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have that much necessarily to contest. I would just say that, you know, if, if you are, you know, if you are defining capitalism, you know, and being really clear about it, this is not, um, you know, it's it's not a third party decree, which, again, is sort of the problem that I have with, like most of the ANCAP community is that they tend to, because they have this problem with capitalism in the term, is that they have trouble sort of, they tend to have trouble, you know, this isn't, obviously trivial to everyone but a lot of them tend to have trouble making this distinction and i think you know ab abandoning the notion of capitalism is a is a useful step in in not only making that distinction but making clear a bunch of other things too is that the current like the current economy that exists today um it is not a product of market activity well obviously it is to some extent but partial mixed um, economy yeah um but essentially it it uh um the 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 privileged features that i think a lot of ancaps tend to like be really favorable toward um you know such as large degrees and you know like large disparities in wealth for instance and um you know these giant corporate oligarchs that a lot of them praise um a lot of the you know a lot of the a lot of their comments on like sweatshop labor for instance um a lot of these things are very clearly not products of free association and i think you know distinguishing between capitalism i guess makes a it, it makes better sense to um to do that and when you sort of you know analyze capitalism with this distinction um like reading a lot of the earlier anarchists or, or earlier libertarians you know um like prior to Rothbard, it actually makes a lot of sense in how they, you know, characterize the term. So like when Kropotkin, when like Peter Kropotkin, you know, like a lot of, a lot of ANCAPs tend to rail against, you know, the ANCOM community, but um, like when Kropotkin, for instance, railed against, you know, private property, um, he was railing specifically against the, the, the fiat decrees by the state, basically, hey, there are a bunch of wealthy landowners that, got all this property through eminent domain um you know th this is this is this is what private property is it's a it's a legal basis you know whereas libertarians we've been analyzed property as simply a um as simply dependent on the actions that cause it to emerge um i would say that private property specifically property owned by um one by an individual uh there's a little bit of messiness when it came to um uh, families because families existed before the individual but tick history has a whole video on that not that I think he's completely right about property um, but what I would say is about like Proudhon and about uh, Kropotkin in their critique of property is that sure it is privately owned but it is just incorrect to say that the current owners are the owners should uh, it have uh, come into their ownership through eminent domain um, and what I would say is, uh, as it relates to establishing who owns property, you have to go with the best claim to it because we live in a world without omniscience. If we had absolute knowledge of everything going back to T equals zero, then we can say with absolute certainty who owns what property. Um, 
However, we don't have that knowledge, so we must just simply go with uh, the best claims to ownership that we have and transitioning from the state in which we currently are in to a state like a state of nature where we have full self-ownership and everything like that. Um, it, we would have to go with the current um, uh, time or the current uh, transition of ownership of property, the current like ledger of every, like say uh, a piece of land, like a house uh, it was previously previously seized by eminent domain. Then someone bought it from the bank uh, or like bought the bank bought it from the state. Somebody bought it from the bank and they've built our, their home on it and have been using it for like several years. Uh, but say it was seized by this other family who then comes to uh, who then like died. But it can be hypothetically go on forever. But whoever has the best claim to property truly owns that property. And in a just system, that would be returned to the original owner. Uh, so in such an example, it can hypothetically go on and on and on. Uh, but that is the purpose of arbitration agencies to then uh, figure out who owns what. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is like, um, I mean, well, I guess I wouldn't disagree with that first part. But then I guess I guess you sort of go on to you know, arbitration agencies, which I have been, at least me and me and me and Ahmed have been talking about this. And we've been at least skeptical of sort of the notion of it's because they essentially have the exact same problems as, um, you know, where, where other libertarians would critique you on, um, would simply be the, you know, property by decree and third party, which again, is the exact same, is sort of the exact same, you know, system that we have today. It's just, it's just called private. So, um, I, I would but say I guess... specifically, uh, it would be entering into a contract uh, with uh, the other contender for ownership of property that, okay, so we have this issue, we want to resolve it nonviolently, so we're going to go to this neutral uh, arbitration agency, whatever the outcome, we're going to agree to it contractually, and if not, we're committing theft of the property against the other um, so then thereby it is enforced through contract law through the consent of both parties uh to follow the outcome but if not if one party consents to and the other does not and then they try to enforce whatever happens to like whatever the arbitration agency decides that is immaterial it doesn't matter um to uh enforce it may be theft it may be not but since we work in the real world uh where we don't know necessarily who the owner is then uh it must be assumed that it is uh, the imposition of force or like it is the initiation of conflict that it is aggression. So you must have that mutual consent to go to the arbitration agency, the third party. If not, you, have, you must go through other means. Yeah. And I guess this sort of touches on the problem again, is that like, you know, that con like contract, like the, the, the notion of contract law itself is, is a is a property standard by law right like as far as as far as a third party decree by contract law i just mean the rules of contract uh the legitimate contracts base their existence in uh property titles if i if i give you five bucks on the promise that you're going to work an hour on my house on like a fence or something like that i give you the five bucks you don't give me uh, you don't fulfill your the property title that I have to an hour of your labor to work on my fence. 
um, then you are stealing that property title from me. Um, and in such a case, I would then be uh, in the right to uh, get retribution remediation for that theft of the property title. Uh, any contract not based in uh, theft, if it were violated, is then just not a contract. It is not enforceable. But well, I think we're getting off into a rabbit hole. I'll, le I'll leave you to respond and then I'll uh, leave it at that. You can respond. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I would just, I could invoke, because um, I think a lot of, I think what you might actually find in the string is there's a really good essay called um, uh, Myth of the Rule of Law by John Hasnass. Um, and also, um, I've been looking into a lot of um, post-structuralist thought and post-modern thought. I'm not sure if you've uh, looked into theorists like, you know, like Foucault or um, Roland Barthes, for example. Yeah, uh, Roland Barthes, um, John Baudrillard. Um, but a lot of them, specifically uh, Roland Barthes, he talks about this concept called death of the author. Are you familiar with that concept? Uh, I've heard of it before, but not it's it's basically the notion that 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 language itself has no inherent contexts so it actually provides a really interesting critique of constitutionalism in the sense that nothing that quite literally nothing um no piece of literature or essay um has an objective interpretation so you know this is this provides a really interesting critique when it comes to like arbitrary third decrees by the state or like the constitution um in that basically any interpretation um, from literally anyone who has the power to do so um, can interpret any sort of decree or any sort of um, writing in any way that they want to. Um, you know, so when we look at like the constitution, it actually provides a lot of explanatory power, but when you apply it to, you know, private firms or private, you know, arbitration agencies, I think personally it has sort of the same issue. Um, or if you were to apply it to, like, for example, contract law, um, you know, not really, um, you know, something for maybe to chew on, but just, uh, just a thought that I've had, but, um, I definitely look into that because that's something that I think, um, w would probably be a, a big cause for a lot of our, a lot of our disagreements on things. Gotcha. Yeah. So like Ashton said, we did get into a rabbit hole. I think it's, you know, time to pull out of this hole and get back to our discussion on whether size matters. Right. Uh, so Garen, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you were talking about, you know, uh, in response to Ashton on uh, like his views of, of the federal government and the incentives there uh, sort of like, you know, the difference between local and federal. And we were sort of on that. And uh, I just wanted to get the rest of your take on that and then sort of uh, ask about what, um, how your methodology would differ uh, just overall, I know we've spoken on anti-politics before and all of that, but just sort of, I want to hear it, um, today, just so we can kind of get like any sort of new takes or explanations you may have on that. Like, what did you want specifically my take on like the difference between smaller and larger states in that sense, or essentially, yeah. Like what do like, you view as the difference since Ashton says like the difference there is the incentives, uh, within the federal government. Uh, and then like, you know, obviously you got into that whole discussion about, uh, financial incentive, uh, and who's getting paid at what level. And then I just wanted to know, you know, sort of like if that's not the right me methodology as far as politics, obviously we've had discussions on this. Like I've said, I'm just kind of wondering like what your takes on that are. Um, maybe if you could shed a new light on it or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as the distinctions between, you know, um, like local government and, you know, the federal government, I really, 
And I think the problem is that the liber- that a lot of the libertarian movements, you know, especially sort of the ANCAP and, you know, the Hoppe crowd, which, t- you know, tends to base their methodology on the concept of localism, is that they tend to think that, like, local governments are somehow di- somehow different in some way than the fe- than the federal government. And, and they are to some extent in the sense that they are technically, you know, different agencies, but in in practical form they're really not in the sense that that any local government essentially relies on well relies on the federal government um to sustain its policies and i guess um at any time the state or the the federal government essentially what local governments are 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 basically just puppet governments for the federal government so you know this notion that they're somehow disconnected or um, separate and a lot of people, you know, like tend to bring up, for example, like nullification. Um, but again, there's sort of the problem that comes with, you know, nullification being treated. I guess a good way to like think about how I view nullification is that like saying that a nullification decree um, somehow stops the federal government from intervening is sort of the same argument when it comes to um, like a constitution stopping what the federal government does or a legislative decree stopping what the federal government does. Um, They're all really just pieces of paper at the end of the day. And really the state only operates out of, you know, if if we're looking at the state as an organizational firm, um, operating at from an ide- from a um, from an ideological or legislative basis is completely absurd because essentially all legislation is is essentially just written propaganda pretext for whatever the state either plans to do or wants the public to think that they do. So the state at any time really can not only reverse these decrees, um, but essentially can use their army to essentially just do what it wants at any time. Um, so really, I think we should be looking at the state's actual actions and the power that it has over these smaller jurisdictions who aren't really at all independent from the federal government, um, rather than, you know, oh, well, the state passed this law and that's that's somehow getting us closer to freedom, you know? Uh, Thoughts on that, Ashton? I would say when it comes to the difference between the, the local and federal government, it is specifically that the means of local government to achieve their ends are not insurmountable in that, uh, and this is true of the federal government as well, and it's true of any government, where um, you had the pretext to go into Iraq originally at the start of the war on terror, um, but we didn't go directly right away. We spent months on a propaganda campaign to get people uh, in or like Iraq, Afghanistan, or anywhere like that, to get people to accept the idea that okay, we gotta go to war, we gotta, we gotta go over there so we can protect our homes over here. Um, an absurd notion, uh, but it is the same thing on the local level, but even more so, where the means by which local governments have at their disposal to to achieve their um, ambitions and their ends are less insurmountable than even the federal government to where um you have a couple uh wealthy individuals who are donors or like who fund uh not necessarily that we should go like the Koch brothers route not at all definitely not fuck them um but you have uh, a few well-connected individuals a few smart very energized individuals such as ourselves (laughs) 
<laughs> go into uh, local politics and uh, make a f- uh, bring about localism and the privatization. Uh, and you would be able to do so without a billion dollars, without the Koch brothers. You could do so with probably less than a, definitely less than a million dollars, uh, some volunteer work, everything like that, um, to get into local office, to do anything past that is another story of means and dependence on the context of the situation. Uh, but then also, I would say that nullification need not stop the state or federal government in just the same way. It need only make their means more effective in achieving their ends. Uh, and that would be the decrease in the state and federal government's utility that could make, say, counter-economic action um, more viable. Because if the state has the central bank digital currency and have absolutely banned all cryptocurrencies or alternative currencies, um, then counter-economic action outside of the eyes of the state is much more difficult. But if the, uh, if the federal government has like banned, say, Monero, but the local government is enforcing no edicts or is enforcing no action to, uh, against anybody who has Monero, doesn't really matter. There's the matter of the internet, but there's all sorts of solutions for that. But firstly, the smaller governments can only are are only the these these nullification decrees are only allowed by the actual federal government. So the federal government at any time can just say, "Nah, you don't you don't have these decrees because we essentially puppet you." Um, so like this isn't really this isn't really a bulwark against the state. It's essentially the 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 national government saying, "Hey, you certain states, if you want to nullify whatever." Um, hey, this isn't going to disrupt your organization model. And well, then we're looking that can at be set of like any smaller state, like the uh, government of South Africa. If the United States doesn't like what the government of South Africa is doing, we can go in there, we can invade, we can install a puppet dictator, and everything like that. That doesn't mean that the that yeah. the United States directly influences the policies in South Africa. It means that they can't indirectly do so, especially the if it indir- goes against the interests we- of the. I was just going to say we indirectly like influence almost every single country on earth yeah, because of that definitely. very reason. And I would say it's it's an indirect control um rather than a direct control. And you can have um you can have actions that go against the federal government done by the local government so long as the federal government does not see it as in their better interest to crack down on said actions. Um they will not exert their force. Yeah, which is exactly my point. But I would say you can push it pretty far to get against the interests of the state before they crack down, especially if you make it a optics nightmare for them to crack down. If you make an opt, well, that's the thing though is that even if even if this is the case, even if this is like this is like this is like best case scenario for your for like the sort of I guess secessionist position is that this is this is essentially still a state. not only being able to being able to change fiat decrees at any time, but doesn't do any, but literally doesn't does not do anything to actually subvert the you know the power of the state to make these uh, these third party decrees in the first place. The state are willingly changing a decree because it's in their own organizational interest to do so. I don't see as a path for liberty, and I guess I'm I'm just a bit like I, I guess I'm just a bit lost on seeing how that. I guess how that helps, even if even if somehow you know 
even if we were to ignore Agora's class theory, we were to ignore the state's organizational interests, um, you know, how is this a step toward freedom? I would say it's a, primarily a step towards liberty and then with sufficient, not liberty, sorry, a, a step towards utility and with sufficient utility, one is better able to um, achieve um liberty itself and the recognition of self-ownership through the abolishment of the state if you have a totalitarian state like say the dprk uh you aren't going to achieve um the abolition of the state or self-ownership through counter-economic action you would be able to achieve achieve possibly greater prosperity um while you live under this but it would not um uh it would not destroy this it would not get rid of this entity that exists only try to ignore it so ashton i'd actually like to uh, ask you why you think it's important for libertarians to keep focusing on politics as part of their strategy and ask uh you know uh what's the problem with being hesitant uh toward politics in the first place or uh, adopting anti-politics when it comes to achieving liberty um i would say it is removing a tool from your tool belt to increase utility uh and i i would I would say primarily when it comes to achieving liberty itself, um, one ought to use the most efficacious means um, or the most efficacious means at one's disposal and say if one were to get rid of all one's tools and just to just use a hammer because a hammer could technically fulfill every other tool in some way, uh, that would not be um the best way to carry out a move towards liberty uh whereas if one were you to use the tools in the tool belt say increasing liberty not liberty utility through um specific political means hyper specific political means um then that moves towards liberty in the sense that one is better able to obtain liberty uh after the utility has been established but I think that's probably where I think our disagreement like aligns the most is that I don't really see the state as like a, a tool within our tool belt. I see it as the thing that we should be using these tools to destroy. So, you know, if we're talking about using the state to destroy the state, you know, using politicians to destroy politics, using bureau bureaucrats to destroy, you know, bureaucracy. Um, again, like I just don't really see that as, again, a, a very viable means in the sense that, um, you know, what we are trying to destroy is the government itself. And the government is not, the government is essentially, well, obviously we both agree that the government is our enemy, but um, this is something that I think, like, I think would be easier to sort of see in like a historical context, because um, if you're familiar with like the disagreements between the early anarchists and the Marxists, um, the Marxists actually were essentially a, a actual co-optation of the early libertarian movements. So if you look at like Proudhon and uh, Bakunin, for instance, um, they were socialists. Um, you know, they were they were very anti-state, obviously, um, but they were the first sort of early libertarians who were radically against state power. But they also were against you know the capitalist class interests, were as you would call you know corporatism or whatever. Um, but essentially, Marx came along basically as sort of the 19th century LP or the 19th century. I don't want to like compare him to Hoppe, but you know, like <laughs> if we're talking, but like, if we're talking about, Hey, um, I'm a libertarian too. Um, 
but you know pragmatically we should use the state as a tool in our tool belt um you know to get rid of the state we can't just you know we can't just not use the state to get rid of capitalism in the state um we have to use that as a proper you know transitionary period within our tool belt um and that's actually where you actually got socialism from being a literal free market movement you know socialism used to be literally free market at least to a certain extent in the sense that you know the socialists um in the Proudhonian and Bakunian sense were wanting to achieve socialist ends through market means right um but when you talk about Marx and using politics you know less than 100 years later you literally get the Soviet Union so um you know we're talking about you know this whole rhetoric of trying to use the state to abolish the state um you get toward this you know, rapidly transitioning spiral where you start having, you know, libertarians in the movement starting to defend literal authoritarianism, um, you know, like Rothbard did in that, uh, you know, essay where he went full paleo and basically saying, unleash the cops, unleash the police. Um, and this happened with, you know, the Marxist movement too. So, um, I mean, I guess, you know, this isn't like the biggest critique of politics, but I think it might be useful in sort of like seeing where our disagreement sort of comes from and seeing where like, you know, maybe future alignment might be able to uh, go, go moving forward. I'd also like to add a quick couple notes for you, Ashton. Um, other than sort of like knowing how the, you know, the property sort of gets into the right hands when it comes to uh, government essentially like giving it back, you know, uh, you talked a little bit about this, but if we're going at the angle of localism, obviously it could get into those who have already, you know, paid more taxes, they're wealthier, they got that from the benefit of the state, so on. Uh, but it's also uh, important to note how is it that new states won't form after this? Uh, what sort of mechanisms are in place to prevent that from taking place? Uh, I'll start with uh, addressing his uh, other points. Um, but I would say uh, when it comes to uh, Proudhon and Bakunin versus Marx and Engels with their whole angle of socialism through free markets, uh, they were correct when it came to the ethics of it, but they were wrong when it came to the economics of it, uh, where they just had the idea that under the conditions of a free market, uh, then we would achieve, uh, then workers would preferentially choose to commonly own, own the means of production. Um, workers would have uh, more equal outcomes when it came to the uh, distribution of wealth and income, um, but they were just wrong economically uh as a resort of that um but they were they they had the right spirit when it came to it rather than marx and angles but what i would say is the difference between um the marxists and the hoppians or anarcho-capitalists when it comes to the involvement of politics to achieve ends is that the uh difference is the consolidation of power uh against the state versus the uh diffusement of power away from the state um and that there was a lot of talk about uh, using bureaucrats to destroy bureaucrats, the state to destroy the state. Well, you could use a bomb to destroy it itself. You could use a bomb to destroy a bomb. And I would say uh, a similar thing could be done where uh, an individual can't, an individual who is, under my definition, agent of the state, under the employ of a state, could act against that state's interest. Whereas um, an individual who's an agent of the state in your sense, who definitionally acts to support the state cannot which is why i would say that mine has a uh, greater utility to focus on as a term 
uh, to focus on those under the employ of the state who can act against it because there's nothing like they wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be under the employ of the state very long if the state uh, if he was say like a bureaucrat and the state had ample knowledge of this uh, action but say a politician gets in um, and starts to uh, privatize the local uh, government's property then uh, said states can only violate its given reasons for legitimacy to get rid of that person and that i would say is also a win because the more the government is seen as illegitimate the greater our claim to liberty is in the minds of the unwoken up populace uh and then to address the point sorry sorry so many points to respond to but to how to prevent new states from forming uh it would be um i would say uh austrian or hoppian class consciousness whereas um, Garen might say, um, agorist, uh, class consciousness, uh, but Hoppian class consciousness is, as I laid out, is the productive class, uh, producers, traders, and homesteaders, uh, versus the anti-productive class, those who expropriate from producers, traders, and homesteaders, uh, and those who petition for set up expropriation therein. Um, if you have the identification against the anti-productive class and opposition to, sufficient opposition to the monopolization of, um, force into the monopolization of um, having the final say on the use of force um, and aggression over a given geographic area, uh, then you would not have a state forming. The key word is sufficiently so. Um, that is a, con that is a uh, standard which cannot be known prior to anything about reality. It has to be contextual to the time, place, and people that you are speaking of in a given place, um, but I think it is achievable and not insurmountable. Okay, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I'd really have to touch upon is this sort of Marx point, is that sort of the Mar the difference between, you know, Marxists and Hoppians. Um, like, are you familiar that after sort of the Communist Manifesto and sort of the whole dictatorship of the proletariat, you're familiar with, like, the Ten Planks of, of Communism, for instance, like, in the Communist Manifesto? Where there would be like uh, a central bank and specifically. yeah okay you know all, all the all the authoritarian stuff that like you know we hate Marxists for equally was it on probably. the Georgia Guidestones huh <laughs> was that stuff on the Georgia Guidestones is that what you're talking about no <laughs> but anyway capacity um, of five hundred million people or something like that. was that the Georgia Guidestones or is that something yeah else? no I'm sorry Garen. I was, it was dumb. <laughs> I, it, it, it's fine. I don't care. But anyway, um, but like you're familiar, though, that, you know, sort of the, the the end within the Marxist material dialectic would be a stateless society, for instance. Um, and the um, and Marx and Engels after the Paris Commune actually denounced quite a bit of those measures in the Communist Manifesto. And specifically, a lot of their plans actually involved a lot of things that I think Hoppians and, you know, paleos and a lot of the LP libertarians um, would actually advocate for. So for instance, uh, Marx and Engels actually advocated for, um, I guess, later during the 1870s, um, they advocated for the abolition, and I'm quoting Engels here, 
um, the abolition of all local and provincial authorities appointed by the state, and complete self-governance in, in the provinces, districts, and communes through elected, through elected officials, you know, elected through universal suffrage. So literally, you know, according to sort of the Hoppian, not directly, obviously, because you guys aren't fans of democracy, yeah. but if about like decentralization and getting rid of the federal bureaucracy um like Engels and Marx actually um were in favor of getting rid of like large segments of the bureaucracy and replacing uh degrees of the state with small local militias so I guess like from the you know the paleo and hoppy perspective what I guess is the difference there uh the difference there is establishing the small local militias and the democracies on the local level if you just ha but, if you have the abolition of the state and then that's it then you have anarchism but if you have the abolition of the state and then creating um small governance that are democratic and that are direct democracy and then small militias that have that are based off that that is the imposition of the state that is the imposition of uh geographical uh, monopoly on the use of force, aggression, what have you. No, but like to clarify, the quote wasn't saying that this was the means to like this was once we have these little militia like that. That's the end of the state. No, they were talking about using that as a transitionary period between um, between the state and anarchy, for instance. So uh, essentially, so essentially, and and I, I guess the part I would like to highlight would be specifically the abolition of all uh, local and provincial authorities appointed by the state. So if we're talking about, um, you know, turning, turning things to the local governments, um, there are essentially, you know, Marx and Engels um, supported a lot of the things that a lot of the paleos, you know, now and a lot of the, like the LP types uh, would actually support. So I guess from, from that perspective, what other critique of Marx could you make other than the fact that he was using the state itself and politics itself. I would say it's the means by which he's using politics. Specifically, it's the, what would be preferential is the uh, destruction of everything except the local governments uh, first, uh, if we were to take an order of operations. However, uh, if we are going to not take that or order of operations and say just the uh, localities themselves, it isn't that the means should not be to change the local governments to direct democracy plus a militia. The change should be the privatization of the local governments. Yeah, so instead of, you know, using that rhetoric around, you know, private or using it around democracy, you just call it, um, I don't know, call it, uh, call, instead of democracy, it's a monarchy, and instead of militia, it's a covenant. I'm community. still not for monarchy. He every, <laughs> For every reason that Hoppe gave that monarchy was better than democracy, he gave that um, anarchy was preferable to monarchy. For every reason that Marx gives for, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat, or the dictatorship of the proletariat being preferable to capitalism, he gives that, that's the same reason that the anarchy is preferable to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay, but See, he, like the problem the, is the, the that, simple like... thing is that he is one wrong economically, and then two uh, specifically uh, wrong about the nature of power itself. In that the idea of the libertarian monarch is that he one has greater utility to convince that one uh, man of uh, the libertarian propositions uh, than one has at convincing the democratic process. Whereas the dictatorship of the proletariat 
there is less utility of uh, convincing said um, dictator. Also, so, a dictator of like 50 people isn't going to be able to um, enact the same um, terrible outcomes as, say, Stalin. <laughs> Just because, oh, you have like five people who are, or like 10 people who are going to enforce these uh, gulags. Yeah, no, that's not happening, but. Well, I mean, again, this is sort of assuming that, you know, the, these actions that the state performs aren't deliberate. I guess, actions carried out by the government itself to increase its own utility. So for instance, like when we talk about uh, deregulation, for instance, or when the state lowers tax rates would be a good example, um, or privatization, um, I feel like a lot of paleos tend to see this as like, oh, well, this, well, these are actions that help us and get us closer to freedom. Whereas I really don't... I really only see them as deliberate actions carried out by the state's organizational model um, to sustain itself for longer periods of time. There's a reason why the state privatizes these resources, and it's not because, oh, well, we, oh, we, I just figured that I should let libertarians win today, <laughs> you know. Um, no, it was because, hey, I want this, this section to be an efficiency, run on efficiency mode for a bit so I can tax them for more. Um, I want to deregulate the section of, of the population um, or of the you know area um, because I want um, I want more people to be um, to go through these centralized white market firms. Um, so you know, in reality, I don't see these things as um, you know implemented because we elected these libertarian politicians. I really just see them as. Um, hey, the state as an organization needed this thing to survive, and it can change these decrees at any time. Um, that doesn't do anything to help like libertarians or liberty, um, but it also, I think, negates the entire point of why we're fighting against the state in the first place, is that we don't want the state to be able to make these arbitrary third-party decrees without our consent in the first place. And I think that's kind of where I tend to sort of you know, promote the counter-economic line is that um, getting into these counter-economic networks specifically is a means to prevent this. Uh, I would say specifically when it comes to this uh, deregulation and freeing the market uh, slightly, uh, I would say that those things increase utility. Uh, would I prefer to live in a place with increased utility like with slightly less regulations and slightly freer markets than a place with slightly more regulations and uh, less free markets, um, relatively speaking, uh, then yes, I, I would want to live in that place. Do I think that aim that our aims should be through the methods that achieve only such things? Absolutely not. I think that is a misallocation of resources uh, to achieving liberty. These things um, obtain uh, utility and if that thing is happening in the background, sure, but our uh, the traditional political process of like the LP going in and maybe getting a senator, definitely not getting a governor, maybe getting some uh, House of Representative members um, in to rattle off some ideas about on the floor about, hey, we should free the market a little bit, please. Uh, no, that that that's that doesn't work. You're definitely right about that and your criticisms uh, in the ineffectiveness in of that but what i would say is that not every action has to be about um invalidating these uh third-party decrees uh things can 
increase utility to a significant degree and once uh that utility is increased to a sufficient amount one is better able to invalidate these third-party decrees if we were in a situation where the government had uh i'm gonna say relatively uh or virtually no means of uh analyzing our financial information such that we could engage in counter-economic action outside of their uh, prying eyes that would allow us to engage in such counter-economic action to a, to the degree that the state would be unable to function in the way that it does currently. So I, I think we're kind of circling back with this uh, right here. Garen, if you have any new points, I'll let you go ahead on it. But uh, one thing I wanted to talk about uh, sort of like as our wrap up topic, uh, instead of the wokeism, I think we could go more so into like how politics and culture intertwine and sort of the issues with that today. Uh, just, uh, I did release a piece just today. Uh, uh, this podcast will go out obviously later than that, but it's called The Fatigue of uh, uh, Political Rhetoric and Media. It is on my Substack, civiloffense.substack.com. Go check it out. Uh, we can talk about that sort of topic, but Garen, if you do have anything we can remain on this for a little bit you had to throw that plug in didn't you yeah of course <laughs> yeah, for sure yeah of course i hey i i you you sent me a bit of a summary of the article and i'm i'm excited to read it so it looks it, it looks really good but anyway um i guess my question would really just be um and this could be a really quick point to i guess touch on would be um like when you talk about increasing utility why do you think the st- like if if increasing utility, quote unquote, were actually, I guess, subversive to the state's organizational model, why do certain states allow more utility than others, for instance? Like why do states uh, why would states willingly increase utility uh, for its population? I would say it need not be directly subversive. The utility can be used as a means towards subversion of the state or it could be used as a means towards increased prosperity that is then taxed by the state or it could be used as a means of anything else it is a means to an it represents means to ends for which those means can be used to achieve subversive ends yeah but that's the thing you just you just pointed out though is that if it's not then it's it's really just going back into the white market and we have the same problem that we it's it's not directly but say say we were in a society in which uh computers completely banned we have don't we don't have the utility of computers at our disposal i would rather live in a in a society where computers are not banned sure that uh isn't it isn't necessarily subversive to the state but utilizing computers we can subvert the state by engaging counter-economic action and everything like that what i'm seeing is the question here though is that um i'm sure you wouldn't agree that the state uh intentionally in a lot of ways subverts freedom obviously that's that's a big critique of it right and um it, it definitely drives down society what incentive is there for it to increase utility i think i, I believe is the question here uh the incentive to increase utility i would say would come Wait, garen oh, I, I, like am i getting that right or is there is there something you want to yeah to yeah that? yeah i was sort of touching upon that because i think this sort of touches upon the problem that we have earlier where it's like well if it's dependent on the the actual people's actions on whether or not they're willing to engage in subversive activity which would be counter-economic activity that sort of just cycles back to the same point which is that you know counter-economics and, and the agorist method is our means like first and foremost um, I would say counter-economics would be the execution upon means. So it would be, uh, say, I think you use the example of like speeding slightly. Uh, 
you would call that a counter-economic behavior because uh, it is an action that is outside of the like uh, purview of the state. Doesn't allow the state doesn't allow it. Yada yada. Uh, the state's fucking edicts against speeding on their highways. Damn <laughs> Unreal. <it. laughs> well, if it's uh, if it's profitable. So, um, for instance, like Konkin, not to interrupt your train of thought, but basically, like if you if you're speeding to um, make deliveries faster, that would be an example right. of a counter-economic action. Gotcha. But um but what i would say is like uh it is the label for which you're putting on the action the cars the actual means that are that's being used uh to speed and so the utility whatever utility represents whether it be oh people are now able to own computers is what the actual means are to the subversive action um but uh what was the what was the uh, original question yeah, so my question here is um, essentially if the state is a, like a subversive oh, yeah. Uh, entity, yeah, what, it, what why would it allow certain things that wouldn't necessarily benefit it? I would say that uh, this goes back to only individuals act. So uh, those under the employ of the state are those ones that act, and they act under their own incentives on, the, on an individual level. So if you have a politician gets in who's a true blue libertarian, um, gets in with the... Uh, incentives ideologically and ethically and just humanely of he's going to uh, privatize uh, the local government with Hoppe's plan and everything. He has those incentives because he is compelled to by ethics. He is compelled to uh, by anything else. Whereas he has those other incentives of, hey, the state threatens to use force against me if I don't do what it says. Um, but he still has those personal ethics that influence his behavior yeah like again this is sort of tying back to i think sort of the problem earlier is that a lot of the misconception is that like we're not denying that people have agency and and can act praxeologically we're we're simply saying that um like if it, like people can act in any way that they want to right but if you go into and are an employee of the state and just sit on your ass and not do anything um then yeah, you're not gonna you're, you're gonna get you're gonna get fired. And why is that? Because there are levels of leverage and incentives being held over you when you are an agent of the state. You have incentives and um, um, pretty much everything um, that influences how how you act while you're an agent of that organization. So it, it, it's sort of like saying like, oh, you're about to be mugged. Um, and then if and then if you were to say, oh well, um, you know, when when you're about to be mugged. Um, you're going to give that person your wallet. Well, you know, people act in their own accordance with their ethics. Yeah, that is true. Like everyone's an individual. But if we're talking about actual degrees of incentives being held over you, what are going to be the actions that you're likely, you know, going to perform? And that's essentially how we analyze the state. But I would say that analyzing on what are the incentives of the state to do X is the wrong level of analysis. It would be what are the individual what are the um, incentives for the individuals to do X is the correct level of analysis because that's what actually is the level of analysis that analyzes action. Um, and so, of course, the traditional like re uh, Republican or the traditional bureaucrat or the traditional Democrat um, is going to act uh, in accordance with the basic incentives that the state has set up to maintain its power. The... Um, I'll just say Hoppian gets in and has his own personal incentives. He has the existing incentives by whatever the state set up in whatever position that he takes. Um, 
but he has those personal incentives that override said incentives that then influences his behavior in one direction. Yeah, so I mean, I guess you talk about. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, like, you say, like, okay, there's individual incentives as well. I mean, you, but you don't dispute that there are positional incentives there in place, uh, essentially, that have already been set up as the, part of the state structure. Uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, individual incentives that may, like, in, in your mind, override that as far as uh, what you're ambitious to do. Uh, I, I mean, it would just go back to the point that, like, you're probably just going to get fired or killed or whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, I don't think, I think it's just needs to be sufficiently true that, uh, I'll just take the example of killing. It needs to be sufficiently true that killing you is an optics nightmare and would be less, it would be, uh, disutilitous. It would be, it would decrease the utility of the state to kill you more than to leave you alive. Um, and I think one would be able to achieve a lot under that equation rather than a little. I mean, not if they're being killed by a rogue ideological terrorist actor acting in their own interests, and definitely not a CIA agent. <laughs> definitely not. Um, you I, know, I so I, I don't think like I don't think being killed is the primary leverage, you know, being yeah. held over these people. But it is definitely one of a, a serious level of leverage that I think needs to be taken into consideration. I mean, if you're a friend of the Clintons, that's probably the primary one. <laughs> <laughs> I do not have information that will lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. I do not. All right. So I think we can wrap up this conversation with that. Uh, We can come back to this another time if we so please. Uh, But I did want to get into the idea of uh, the state pushing politics, Um, you know, uh, how people have become more politicized, why people are so obsessed with it now. I did want to hear both of your takes on this, whether you think that's a good thing as far as the political discourse increasing, whether you think it's going to lead to the degradation of the state or if it's going to, you know, just increase the state's uh, uh, control over the, the economy and society. I'll let you go first. first. No, I'll throw it to you first. I was gonna say. I definitely didn't miss the start of that question or statement. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd like to be a bit more, I guess, specific on what you're, I guess, asking us. <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, you, you've talked about this. We talked about this in our, uh, like, politics, a waste of time episode, where we said, you know, uh, basically, you know, the, the media has become more politicized. They're, like, and, and when I say media, I don't just mean, like, the, you know, um, the state back like, uh, news media. I mean, like, as well, like, entertainment, uh, if you can call it that. Uh, as far as, you know, late night TV is a big example I bring up in my article where I basically say, like, they're essentially just pushing the narrative. A lot of it is uh, they're talking, like, you, if you've seen Colbert's The Vaccine, uh, where he just starts, you know, singing about the vax. And then you see Jimmy, uh, I believe it was uh, Fallon that did this one. He was singing about the new variant. And then you, you see uh, Kim talking at the Oscars about Tucker Carlson's uh, segment on January 6th and uh, he's saying like oh they turned 44,000 hours of a violent insurrection uh, into or into like a tour of the Capitol so and this is all like they also have like a, a Stephen Colbert series on Comedy Central where it's like uh, tuning out the news like they, they literally push it uh, you know like in every way throughout entertainment to get people obsessed with politics. And that is not just a phenomena exclusive to this section. I mean, you can see it in Hollywood as well. So what is the purpose of that? And and is it helping? Is it hurting? What is it doing? Well, yeah, I mean, I honestly see it as just um, simply just deliberate actions by the state to carry out, again, um, it's domestic propaganda for the citizens. If we're talking about like its connection with the media, its connection with literally every aspect of society, 
Um, we can point to uh, Operation Mockingbird, for instance. Um, the, the the CIA, the um, uh, like the hundreds of CIA agents literally infiltrating journalists um, or journalistic institutions to manufacture domestic propaganda. Um, if we're talking about that literally being the purpose of the CIA, other than like overthrowing foreign dictators and stuff, um, you know, we can point to um, we can point to literally just the FTC itself. Uh, or the FC, whatever the fucking I'm, I'm, I'm having FCC a brain fart. The but... communications one. Yeah, I'm thinking of something differently. Uh, I think I'm just having a, a bit of a uh, a brain fart, but whatever. Um, the 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 organization that essentially the state at any time can literally just not give licenses to these media firms if they're not acting within its own interests. So, um, I guess the notion that like the media isn't isn't at least some degree controlled at the very least by the government is a complete like absurd like absurdity and i think the reason why we're seeing so much politicization lately is because the state has an interest in essentially politicizing every single aspect of reality so um you know if we talk about like the trans issues that are happening in schools um we're talking about like in the last five years specifically um every aspect of politics becoming more entrenched in uh, everyone's own daily lives and people seemingly uh seemingly acting even more crazy than usual um this is this is kind of a sign of a at least a an empire in decline in the sense that like if you look at what was happening at the end of the soviet union um like near the decline of the soviet union a lot of the um uh, a lot of some of the citizens literally said that yeah it it the political climate feels like reality is breaking down and if we look at like the current climate climate that we're existing in now i think that's a pretty um accurate representation but yeah like definitely the state has an interest in in essentially promoting two narratives that i've noticed um it wants to politicize as many aspects of reality as possible and depoliticize itself so the thing that the state really wants you to think is that uh you control it um it's an ideological organization um it's run by I don't know, just the, the individual interests of the, you know, people who, and that is true to obviously an extent, but if we're talking about the state as an organization, it definitely does not want you to think of it as an organization. It's why, you know, elections are so popular. It's because it wants you to think that um, democracy is a real thing. Um, and this is something that we could also probably talk about too, is that like you say democracy is antithetical to freedom, but honestly, I see democracy itself being state propaganda is that I don't think democracy itself even exists in the sense that um, the notion that citizens actually control what the state does in that sense, I think that is just pure state propaganda. So um, in a sense, democracy is antithetical to, to freedom, but not because it's an actual thing, but it's because it's a, it's a state contract. So I don't know. Oh. What, what are you, what are your thoughts on my little tirade? <laughs> I'll, I'll probably rely uh, replies basically to the last part because i mostly agree with the first part um but i would say the state utilizes democracy as a legitimizing force for its edicts um it sees democracy as having utility in that uh hey of the pat like we we get a lot of compliance with our edicts when we just say that, hey, the majority of you uh, wanted this to happen. Whereas if we had a king, divine right, or if we had a dictator or any other method, if we had 
fucking oligarchy like we do um then people wouldn't necessarily want to follow our edicts very much and we'd have to spend a lot more on on enforcing it and we might have collapse and everything like that um but with that the people have I wouldn't say direct influence. I would say uh, close to indirect influence in that, say, uh, I referenced the propaganda campaign prior to us entering um, all of these wars uh, where the public perception, if it didn't matter at all, they wouldn't care about propaganda. Uh, But they do very much care about propaganda in that they will spend uh untold amounts of money on it they will go through extremely unethical means to to research methods about it um and they will go through all sorts of psychological operations upon the public to uh get that construction of consent to all these policies uh but i would say on the whole yeah say just like the individual does not have a say on the actions of um, a uh, employee of the state, um, the group has somewhat of a sway. Like the individual politicians, the uh, voters can have somewhat of a sway, but that gets into like it is somewhat indirect uh, influence upon their actions. Yeah, and I wouldn't disagree with that. I guess to clarify, like when I meant influence, I mean like like the the like the 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 body politic votes on a policy and that decides what the state does rather right. than the state being influenced by economic incentives but yeah, yeah we're looking fair. at like people but yeah like if we're looking at people um you know counter counter economizing or subverting state propaganda yeah those are definitely libertarian means gotcha yeah, and I think the whole public opinion thing um, matters to the state so much because they want to put it in your mind that the law is morality. Uh, you know, I, I literally sometimes you'll watch shows like I, I've watched shows before where they'll say like, oh, that's wrong. It's against the law. You know, that's literally it. Or even then, uh, you know, this whole like uh, and it's not even in, in media necessarily. You know, you could just find it in like corporations, like the advertisement they use. Uh, some of these things like I, I was at the mall one time and they just had a sign saying protect trans kids in the window. Like, are you serious? And I know that 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 wasn't just some like, you know, person saying like, oh, we need to do this now. Like, obviously, that came from, uh, you know, this whole like approval of these these structures that are like, okay, this is what you have to push to people. uh, And it'll benefit us if you do that. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think. um, I mean, yeah, I don't I don't know that I have much more comment on that. I think we're both in kind of agreement. Yeah, I think this uh, this current, I, I don't know where to place this current social push around the LGBT stuff. I think it was a somewhat unintended outgrowth of the destruction of the family, of the nuclear family, of the family unit. Uh, unit. Um, and it has then been seized upon to get more authoritarian gains and say... Um, education or other aspects under the state's control um, to the chagrin of these uh, individual actors within the state. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I'd, I'd say that um, that's, and that's actually something that I haven't really thought about before is that, yeah, like if you're thinking about from the perspective of like the family being, the nuclear family being destroyed by the state, for instance, like through welfare programs and things like that, 
Um, that definitely is probably contributing to a lot of the whole LGBTQ uh, issues. But I think a lot, I think a lot of the push comes like specifically from the, the state media and the schools themselves too, because essentially if you can, if you, if the state has an interest in pushing this, because if, um, if you make every aspect of your identity, a political allegiance and put you into like this category, um, then you can essentially fr frame a power oppression dichotomy where you can frame this political party as being a means to secure your your gay interests or your trans interests. Well, these other evil Republicans and these other interests are against your interests, even though real in reality, no matter which politician you elect, they're serving the same organization. So um, remember, I if if you don't wear a mask, you're not queer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think like the only thing that we would we'd probably disagree on the culture front would just be certain like cultural issues because I tend to like be a lot more because like I'm not really right or left I guess culturally you could say I think I, I think there are valid aspects of it um both ways but I think um we'd probably more disagree when we talk about like um you know being against wage labor and you know hierarchical institutions I think um and like sort of the current capitalist infrastructure that's something that's really appealed to me a lot more um just because i i saw a lot more you know explanatory power through it but i think if we're looking at um depending on the cultural issue i think yeah like if we're talking about like the lgbtq uh, movements i think they're definitely really toxic because they're just there's in pull and they're pushed by the state for that deliberate reason to politicize every aspect of a person's identity into a political interest and it's kind of like my problem with Marxism too, is that it essentially does the same thing, but for for almost every other aspect besides like specifically um, queer stuff, because Marx didn't really talk about that, and you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but yeah, I think just kind of some. Garen, you're you're a cultural middleman. I Come really, on, guys. I really am. Unity. No, I really our, am. Our, yeah, our, our our trad wives need to be goth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey. Why not? Uh, but what I, would I mean, say, hey, no one's arguing against that. It's not me. <laughs> what I would say are is the the values that I see as what conservative values should be would probably be um, family, fraternity, and community. Uh, I'm I'm trying to like tackle like the idea of fraternity itself. But uh, prior to the welfare state, we had fraternal societies in the United States. Uh, they weren't just the Freemasons. They weren't just uh, the Templars. Or <laughs> I only say that because of Assassin's Creed. Um, but <laughs> uh, it wasn't just secret societies. It was also just uh, we share a common interest or we share a common trait among ourselves. So we should help each other out and everything like that. Um, they took care of uh, orphanages. They took care of uh health insurance or like a uh, medical expenditure uh among with it many other services and i think that it was part of it was a cultural institution that could not withstand the state in our current day the only institution that is somewhat withstanding the state is the church and even that has been heavily corrupted and adulterated by the state itself um but i think if we brought back uh with if we did not have the state we would have much more many more fraternal societies uh where we'd have man helping man even if you are not part of the same community uh like directly in terms of you would have uh national international or state inter or 
I guess even st- I say state only because of the United States, but it would make sense to be like the United States without the state. Um, but over over long distance geographical regions, we would have these uh, organizations that connect people together. Uh, and if we and so I think that is an important key to um, conser- what should be conservative values that I think is missing. And then community, you should be. Um, close with tight-knit with your community that you live with uh and then family of course the family is extremely important to raising healthy kids and to uh bring about next generation to live a fulfilling life and everything like that yeah actually um like are you familiar with it's it's funny that you talk upon like fraternal societies are you familiar with um like roderick long's um how the government solved the healthcare crisis uh essay Uh, Not Um, that one specifically. Okay, so he basically talks about, like, that literally there were fraternal societies in the 1900s that literally could provide mutual aid healthcare to people um, for, um, I think, what what was it? It was, like, what, $2 a day? Yeah. No, 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 it was was $2 for a whole whole year, I think, wasn't it? I I I think it was, like... um, It was something insane, yeah. yeah. You could have a plan for, like, yourself and then, in some cases, your entire family to buy a year of healthcare for like one dollar or two dollars or something like that yeah and that would have just been at the time it would have just been a, a person's daily wage so yeah. you know uh so we're talking about like yeah the, the you know so the, yeah we had like we had a healthcare crisis well we had free market healthcare and the government killed it you know um so i think like this we is something that i think in healthcare I... where doctors weren't being paid enough so then oh, the yeah, government no, came no, no, in yeah. and solved that crisis by increasing <laughs> the price of healthcare. <laughs> healthcare is too cheap. Uh, <laughs> we 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 gotta solve this problem. <laughs> A problem yeah, they no, actually is... solved. Incredible. True, exactly. The only problem that the government solved, <laughs> you know, besides bombing people in the Middle East, but that's a whole other yeah, thing. Too too, too many uh, children under five in the Middle East, so we gotta take care of that. <laughs> Did you watch that uh, MRH legacy video? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was that was amazing. Like he, uh, uh, yeah. Like I'm, I'm definitely, like as far as because this is two things. Um, like as far as he, he's a Hoppian, but you know, and as much shit as I give Hoppians, um, that video was absolutely amazing. Um, uh, and as far as like as much, huh? Uh, I, I'm gonna say is uh, uh, Liquid Zulu also covered. I think I don't know if it's that essay in particular, but the same. Uh, information about fraternal societies uh and i hope he's still watching till now because i'm going to be sharing it in a discord server that i'm in and he's in and mrh legacy is in uh oh, okay cool you know. cool i'm i'm glad well whatever <laughs> anyway um are you uh like um because this, this is like the one thing that i think i would i would give hoppa as far as like you know as much as i shit on him and his work um is that yeah like he definitely does do a good job at like touching upon um sort of how the state destroys family relationships and um and sort of compromises a lot of conservative values i think that there are like i think conservatism as it's like broadly i think is in conflict with libertarianism in only in the sense that um like libertarianism is a very radical philosophy so if we're talking about um like the current institutions of society and the current way that society is structured the current like property relations that exist now um being a product of the current society and you know being a product of libertarianism i think you can't really be conservative in that in that sense because essentially when we're talking about disrupting the entire order that 
humanity has been built upon for the last like 3,000 years, um, you know, you can't really be conservative in that sense. But I think that there are a lot of conservative values that I think are helpful for people to embrace. Yeah, it's like, uh, it depends on what conservative means, because if you mean it in the literal sense of conserving the order from which you grew up, one, that's very, that that's just uh, progressivism driving the speed limit. Uh, and then two, you aren't conserving that which is truly of the past. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's this whole idea of like the trad wife and the trad life and everything like that. White picket fence in the suburbs, uh, 2.5 kids and a dog. Uh, and then you have people that go even further than that that say like trad life is a cope that's just a construction of like the 1950s you gotta go back further than that you gotta live rural you gotta homestead and i I, i'm i'm quite partial to that uh but you like you gotta have four children yeah uh it's 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 i think i think one they're right that that rural life is a more fulfilling life than the suburbs um but it is just a conservatism is like a relative free floating proposition uh, that's dependent on the society in which you live and what you're conserving. Uh, but I, I think the truest I, I, conservative as a term because of its relative nature is um, not very useful. And there might be a better term out there, but uh, specifically defining your values by uh family fraternity and community i think is more important than whatever label of conservative yeah for sure i wouldn't disagree with that i did want to ask you though um like were there any questions that you maybe wanted to talk about like i guess related to some of the things that like i'm involved in or like sort of my camp with sort of the uh um like agorism for instance or like the all the alliance of the libertarian left sort of the c4ss crowd um i guess maybe some misconceptions that maybe you may or just questions that you might have about like i guess you know why we appeal to the left why we tend to be more left-leaning or whatever or um why we tend to be like really critical of sort of the hoppian movement uh i think you speaking on that i actually wanted to i wanted to get into why like you know what both of you think is the right outreach for libertarians as far as uh like which social groups to talk to i mean ashton if you had a question we can go on that first but i I, like i do want to address that sort of thing with both of you uh I, I would say I wouldn't know what misconceptions I have. I would say I would have conceptions. I wouldn't know if they were misconceptions until presented with the information that they were. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I, but what I would say is, um, hmm, uh, you've told me the reasons that you have for criticizing Hoppians and everything like that, uh, and I'll take that. Um as it is, I'm not going to like say, no, that isn't your real reason for disliking Hoppa. You hate Hoppa because X, Y, Z. No, that's, uh, that, that's uh, dumb. Um, but I'll hop off the point about uh, the way that we can do outreach or that like ANCAPs can have outreach and the way that agorists have outreach. But I'll focus on the ANCAPs because I am one. Um, I think when it comes to the people who currently identify as conservative, there are a few ways to go about it uh, if they care more about um, it's kind of like the professional mature sort of optics or aesthetics Then I think someone like Tom Woods is a great way to get across to them. Here you have this guy who's never done a drug in his life, uh, completely straight edge, who's just like a true blue libertarian. Um, wears a suit everywhere he goes and is unabashedly against all of these wars is extremely eloquent 
um, and is a really entertaining guy, a really good business sense, that dude can appeal to like the middle-aged conservative guy not that they're the most active or would be the most useful at a libertarian movement i think you need sort of new blood young blood um but it's still important to have the widest appeal possible um without compromising on values uh and then this new sort of movement i think you have creators like liquid zulu like mrh legacy like springtime of nations like praxben um uh, use, and then uh, I think Anglo-Libertarian was the one that quit, sadly. Um, but you have all of these new creators who are small, up and coming, and I think they're really great as well. Um, and I'd say Dave Smith is in that camp. He's definitely larger. Uh, but you have all of these uh, content creators on these media platforms who appeal to the more sort of... Um, economically interested and philosophically interested young minds of this new generation who are probably tend to be more right-wing here that might just be my background of it but yeah yeah i mean i can speak like to myself like i um i got into the libertarian movement through sort of the conservative movement specifically through um well i was mainly introduced to like people like rothbard and people like um like Bob Murphy, for instance, and those those two people are probably the two that like I would recommend the mo- most um, for like conservatives specifically getting into libertarianism. Uh, like, preferably not Paleo Rothbard. Like, probably like '60s Rothbard was probably the best era Rothbard that I like introduced them to. Um, a few other lecturers are really great by him, but um, like. Um, but I've been skeptical of, I guess, the notion that I think messaging going forward is the right option, not necessarily in the sense that I think that messaging is in, in itself harmful, but I think that when we're looking at the concept of politicization and the way that people have been, like, methodically propagandized to view the state and its relations to society, and as far as the, like, Agoras method being, you know, purely performative and not really ideological in the sense, um, I think that, like, I don't think that, I guess, outreach would be the, would, is really the agorist strategy. Um, and I think that it's, it's not necessarily a harmful strategy. Obviously we're doing outreach too, but I more see it as a, like a means toward, um, I guess, keeping libertarianism in check and having, um, like really cool, unique discussions about libertarianism. Um, so I guess we would we would really only disagree in the sense like that what what role we view um, outreach in relation to liberty, um, but in regards to like if we are going to outreach, I don't think that there is a big is necessarily a dichotomy um, with who you outreach to. I think it just depends on the person. I don't really think it depends on the like political affiliation you have, whether that be you know left wing or conservative or whatever. I think it really just has to do with um, I guess the level of politicization and the amount of political narratives that you have, I guess, ingested into yourself, or I guess the amount of political narratives that you uh, take as true. Um, so for instance, like um, like a, a radical progressive who might be um, really skeptical toward political action, for instance, I think would be a lot better candidate to message toward than like, for instance, a conservative who... Um, I don't know, like a like a purebred, uh, you know, boomer conservative who thinks that democracy is amazing. You know, 
Um, and and I would say the same for vice versa. So it's not democracy; about, it's a constitutional republic. <laughs> it's a it's a democratic republic. I hate I hate. Now when listen like here, liberal trickle down economics works. God, I, I miss. That's I miss. why we're a constitutional republic because it protects our freedoms. I honestly miss when things were so simpler, and I just. And I just only watched like people like Ben Shapiro and <laughs> and other conservatives like Crowder and stuff. Uh, yeah. The good old days. And I do um, want to mention because I, I I almost did him dirty. Mentis Wave is amazing as well. Everyone watch Mentis Wave videos. He's very good as well. Uh, just gotta shout him out as well. Um, oh yeah, but... I guess I guess I should probably do some plugs. Um, <laughs> I'd I'd personally recommend um, uh, the Back Alley Philosophy Channel is a really good. Uh, resource for like agorist theory um i'd recommend as far as like more, the more academic works i'd number one recommend roderick long because he is probably he's probably my favorite oscar libertarian like other than konkin but i'd also recommend konkin too um um the problem with konkin though is that he was notoriously like terrible at, not terrible at writing but producing content so he has like two books and part of that is also because he was like suppressed by um a lot of the more like uh paleo figures like specifically uh laissez-faire books are you familiar that he was like blacklisted from <laughs> that publication yeah. it's a lot of it's a lot of the reason like why um i've been really critical of like the mises institute for instance even though i i would recommend them as a resource is that i think that they've um they and this is actually something that we should probably we could probably talk about too before the, the stream's over is that um like I've had a lot of problems specifically with the Mises Institute in particular that they seem to, they've sort of garnered this, um, like they've, they've sort of adopted some of the, the same problems that a lot of academic institutions have where there are pretty, pretty clear conflicts of interests uh, in that organization where if you, you know, step out of the typical ANCAP line or you step out of the traditional paleo line, um, then you are either purged or silenced. And this is, um, this is probably most evidenced by, are you familiar that like, like Roderick Long himself was actually like fired from the Mises Institute? I was are not. you familiar with that story? So basically, um, like Roderick Long actually at a, a 2018, uh, Libertopia lecture, um, gave a, uh, gave a lecture critiquing Hoppe and it was called, um, I can't remember what it was called. It was called, um, I think it was called Hoppian Libertarianism as as right as as a reactionary right wing or something like that. I don't know specifically the title. I'm probably butchering it, but basically um, he made it. He he did a whole uh, like hour lecture critiquing Hoppe, and Jeff Dice basically was pretty pissed about that, and so he literally just straight up fired him because he gave that lecture and, and essentially said that these are not the views of the Mises Institute. And yeah, you're no, you're no longer invited to events. And yeah, he was like a senior fellow too. Yeah. Cause um, like, I, I can understand not wanting like infighting because libertarian unity, we shouldn't take aim at uh, our brothers in arms and everything like that. But I, I wonder what the specific context of that case was, cause that could be uh, admonishable. Yeah, I mean, it could be that, like, maybe he gave, like, he could have given the lecture without, I guess, permission or something, I don't know, but it, it just seems like that there are, um, specifically with also Konkin's work not being really published at the Mises Institute, and also people like, um, like, people like Per Byland, for instance, um, like, Per Byland is 
pretty much a straight up agorist himself. Um, but he doesn't really, he's not really that vocal about it. And I, th- and I think that is specifically because of, of the, of a lot of like the conflicts of interest that we have sort of seen at like institutions like the Mises Institute, where um, sort of going against the party line is, um, is pretty much discouraged. Um, and a lot of the, and a lot of the takes from the Mises Institute are pretty terrible. And I guess ones that I would have disagreements with, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that specifically. Uh, what do you mean by like their current takes that you disagree with? Um, well, just their because of the ANCAP movement, like I guess now, and I, I sort of predicted this about like a year, a couple like a couple of years ago, even is that I sort of predicted that, that like the Hoppian movement would not just become like a fringe of the ANCAP movement, um, but would sort of become the ANCAP movement, and that's sort of what's you know, you would probably see that as a benefit. I would see that as... Yeah, um, I was about to say, what's wrong with that? Um, but, like, the the sort of... Um, the hop of faction of the ANCAP movement has sort of just become the ANCAP movement, and it's why it, it sort of made me a lot more uh, skeptical of, like, being an ANCAP. I, I wasn't ever an ANCAP, but I was definitely a lot more, like, I guess, ANCAP-oriented. If, if that makes sense um but a lot of the like the, a lot of the articles basically are just parroting hoppus takes for instance on um on feudalism on monarchy on immigration for instance and we could probably talk for another hour about that but those are things those are things that i think um have been rapidly promoted by the Mises institute that i uh sharply disagree with gotcha uh but i would say it, it the what I would say is the utility of Democracy the God That Failed, for example, is to attack the sacred cow of democracy in uh, speaking of how it is um, it has less utility than, say, monarchy in certain examples, um, and that it is not a legitimizing force of the government, that it is, um, I think it just stroke, struck at the heart of uh the sacred idols of our time in that um you have oh uh democracies are the government of the now monarchies are the government of the past and uh this is just like this one this is like the progression of thing two like oh we're on our way like this idea of just like uh liberty liberty is achievable because you can obtain public office and you can like uh get go through the channels set up through the democratic process to achieve the ways. Um, and I think rather than attacking that directly through a, um, no, you can't, it, it, there, it is part of a two pronged approach to um, delegitimize the ideas itself in terms that appeal to libertarians. Yeah, I mean, I. All right. So, yeah. I mean, my, yeah. My, well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it legitimizes monarchy, though. Is the other thing. Well, I mean, we to, can to point some to... people who have not read it. Uh, also, I have myself have not read it. I've just seen um, some better takes on it than others. Um, well, I probably well, I should the... read it. I've got a lot of reading to do, but um, the people who do not read it uh, and who claim that they do uh, and are monarchists are incorrect to say it's a well personally i don't really think that his um like his own personal ideology so you know that like clip when he says like oh i'm not a monarchist for instance 
you know, it's like, okay, I, I don't, I'm not really concerned about what your own ideology is. I'm really more concerned about what, what your methodology is and what your methodology doesn't stand as a reputation to. And if we're talking about using monarchical, monarchical governments as a means to achieve, you know, libertarian ends, that's where I would, you know, strike at the heart. I'm not really concerned that Papa doesn't say that he's a monarchist, you know? Gotcha. So I think a lot of people make the, like, because a lot of people are baited into saying, like, um, um, well, oh, well, Hoppe specific, where did Hoppe specifically say that he supports this? And it's like, no, I don't really care, I guess, in that sense, like, what, what specific ideology he's promoting. I'm concerned about the methodology. I'm not concerned about what ends he claims that his means will achieve. I'm, I'm concerned about his means um, and his, you know, lack of, um, I guess, critiquing, uh, critiquing politics as a viable method to achieve libertarian ends. I mean, it also critique... back into the whole discussion again. Yeah, I know, right? Well, I mean, yeah. it also critique his um, his natural order theory to um, his defenses of Lamarckian evolution. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things like feudalism, for instance. We could probably have a whole discussion on that, but um, I'm not those are all with things. Ideas about feudalism. I'm guessing it's just like because it relates to private ownership of people. It is more. I don't know. Oh yeah, I could. I could. Oh, I, I assume that you. Yeah, I guess I assume that you read Democracy, the God that Failed. <laughs> Wait, not, am I more of a hobby than I you read, are? Oh my god. <laughs> I, I read essays. <laughs> I've read more I, than I, I've you. Got, I've got a book list that I got. I really got to get to, including Human Action by Muses. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to tackle that because I've been... Um, like, I see personally the Austrian methodology as being the most viable, uh, like, I guess, economic methodology. And that's probably something that we, you know, align on. Um compared to like because often like i think agorists are called like oh the instant that we start promoting agorist ideas we're immediately called mutualists by every ancap in existence mm, but mm-hmm. like mutualists aren't even austrians so it's more just annoying that i feel like a lot of people don't seem to properly represent the agorist position um yeah but like as far as like hoppus takes i you know my initial take on Hoppe, honestly, was sort of just the same that a lot of Hoppians make, is that, like, yeah, I legitimately thought that, like, all the people coming out uh, in favor of uh, neo-feudalism and, uh, like, being actual monarchists and um, being alt-writers were all just, like, genuinely them not reading Hoppe. But then I started reading Hoppe, and I'm like, huh, I can kind of see where all this toxic stuff is coming from, you know? Um, like his defenses of the alt-right, um, again, his, cause, cause the entire point of democracy and God that fail isn't just like, it, 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 like part of it is, um, the, you know, critique of the, the sacred cow of democracy, which I would agree with, but, um, uh, he also explains his natural order theory there. He explains his theory of secession. Um, he, exp- I know he explains. He explained, I think he, he touches on feudalism in there too, but he touches on it more of like uh, from uh, in books like uh, from aristocracy to to monarchy to democracy. Um, but yeah, all, all of those takes I take complete umbrage with. And it's, um, yeah, it, it definitely made me a lot more skeptical of like sort of the ANCAP crowd in general, just because of those takes. Gotcha. I think the idea of specifically that there are um natural elites is more or less true um but that doesn't mean that doesn't come with any sort of um 
ethic with it that because these are natural elites, they ought to stay elite or that gives them any special right to do X, Y, or Z or anything like that. Just like in terms of the hierarchy of wealth and influence among many other hierarchies, someone will be at the top just purely by say, if it's wealth, they have the competence in that they are charismatic um, or like, no, if they, if it's uh, influence, they have the competence in that they're charismatic. Uh, if they have wealth, they have the competence in that they have uh, skills that are most marketable among the people of that population or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, but like, if we're talking about um, his, his his theory of uh, sort of, if we're talking about the natural order theory, that the notion that um, he talks about in, in a lot of quotes, specifically in Democracy of the God That Failed, the notion that like, um, so, sort of these natural pattern aliases will form among uh, sort of the natural aristocracy that um, um, he, he essentially has promoted multiple times the notion that behavior is genetic or that behavior mm. is influenced by genetics. And if we're talking about that's him just straight up defending Lamarckian evolution, in, in my opinion, that goes like directly not only against the libertarian notion of agency, but like praxeology as well. Are you making the jump yourself as an inference, or I think well, I just got to read it and get back to you on it? Because uh, well, I can give you a quote. I um, feel a debate simmering here. Yeah, exactly. I I don't even know if I necessarily defended or not, but I'm just like that doesn't because well, you, you say like yeah, uh, natural behaviors and natural elites, and then you jump straight to genetics. I don't know if you're specifically implying that he makes the jump or that you are. Yeah, so I can give you uh, the quotes, or a, a couple quotes. Um, he says, quote, um, in, this is in a, a Short History of Man. Uh, a Short History of Man would be a great uh, essay to look into because that's specifically where he talks about uh, behavior and, um, and genetics and things like that. But if we're talking about um, like human inheritance and stuff, that's kind of where he talks about it. Um, let me get the quote. Um, he says, quote, uh, this combined with the laws of human genetics and civil inheritance produced over time a more intelligent, ingenious, and innovative population. Um, another one from, I think, um, yeah, he says, uh, I think this is, this is from the same essay. Um, what I mean by natural aristocrats, nobles, kings, or sorry, what I mean by natural aristocrats, nobles and kings here, is simply this. In every society, some minimum degree of complexity, a few individuals acquire the status of a natural elite. Due to superior achievements of wealth, wisdom, bravery, or a combination thereof, some individuals come to possess more authority than others, and their opinion and judgment commands wide, widespread respect. Moreover, because of selective mating and the laws of genetic and the laws of civil and genetic inheritance, positions of natural authority are often passed on within a few noble within a few noble families. So, like that right there is him specifically defending Lamarckian evolution. I, I would say specifically the civil inheritance parts. It sounds mm -hmm. like it is just the inheritance of reputation in the minds of the people, and that said, your father was great. So therefore, you have this um, higher reputation because your great father. I think that's what it means by civil inheritance, but I could be wrong. Well, when he's talking about genetic inheritance and if we're talking about positions being passed down within a few noble families, there are other parts of the essay where he like goes into detail with this, but this yeah. is him specifically, you know, defending this idea. And this is something that um uh I guess if you were like curious about getting more into it, you could read um uh I can't remember the essay, but it was something that um uh both Roderick Long has um 
uh, supported the idea of um, critique Tapa on this ground. Um, it's something that uh, Per Byland has critiqued Tapa on this ground. Although it wasn't really a critique, it was more just him him sharing an essay on Twitter about it. Um, and I, I'm trying to find the essay. Um, it was um, where he talks about... Oh, yeah, it's called um, Racial Determinism and, and, and Immigration in the Works of uh, Ludwig von Mises. Um, so I'll link that essay to you if you're interested in it. But yeah, sure. All right. Well, with that, uh, I wanted to hear your final thoughts. Uh, I know we got into Hoppe a little bit there, but uh, just overall as an episode, we talked about quite a bit, um, you know, other than culture, which we also just talked about. We also talked about, um, you know, sort of uh, how the state operates, uh, things within that and then politics in general. So do you guys have any closing thoughts? Um, just that I'm prepared to get a lot of shit from the Hoppian communities that are going to raid this video again. after you send it. It's more engaging. Look, look what Zulu commented last time. Yeah. Maybe again. Maybe again. Yeah, and that's, that's hope fine. you stuck to the end, boy. <laughs> are we gonna get Liquid Zulu on a podcast though, Ashton? I mean, hey, hey, if you're still watching, if you're still watching, come on. Um, I don't know how. Well, I, I guess he would probably be like trying to like take down Garen rather than like interact with me. No, he'd be like Garen, come on my show. We're gonna debate this because I learned most of um my uh ethics through his uh debates i've watched uh, a lot of his content and then just recently um i figured i uh, figured out that zulu um he got his mind changed by this guy called idol work and idol work is the one who's just like the true like giga chad brain um and he's got like a server where there's a bunch of like uh fellows of apoptosis everything like that but good guys good guys very smart very intellectually any, minded okay any other closing thoughts ashton um i am going to be starting a uh series on trying to concisely describe and uh, argue for libertarian ethics um it is going to be uh utilizing the work of uh mises through his praxeology um building upon rothbardian natural law and utilizing um, argumentation ethics as developed by Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, all together modernized through the dialectics that I've had in apoptosis with Idleworks, Liquid Zulu, and others. All right, Garen, I'll throw it back to you because I know you know Ashton did did quite a bit of plugging there, <laughs> but you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been talking about it for a while. I've been working on a pretty lengthy essay um, entitled "The History of the Libertarian Movement." Um, it's more of a historical work, but I'll probably be going into some of my, I think it'll be a good expansion on like, I guess, having some historical context for a lot of the takes that I've made and that I've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, like paleos reading about, but, um, um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a good discussion. I liked that we, I think it was a little bit back and forth, but I liked that it was more like of an actual it felt more like a conversation and a dialogue rather than like a debate, like a, an epic poem, yeah. 2016 epic style, um, where I think, you know, at least I've noticed in a lot of the ANCAP communities and a lot of the, like the political communities in general is that that's sort of just been the modus operandi, whereas, whereas my means are really just to, you know, see, if, you know, see if you have anything to offer to the discussion and, you know, uh, really just share ideas for people to view and that's all i that's all i want to do because obviously i'm still learning i'm still um 
I've only just gotten into this community like less than a year ago. So um, like really, really gotten into it. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the discussion. I think it was cordial and I think it was uh, fun, especially toward the end. Yeah. And you also have your YouTube channel into the Agora, which I'll, I'll put in the description. I know you haven't uh, published anything as of yet, but you know, we're waiting on that. <laughs> yeah. I haven't published anything of, as of yet. Um, partially due to procrastination, personal things. Um, also just because of the sheer length of some of these undertakings that I want to, uh, start writing. Um, there are a lot of factors, but definitely subscribe. I can't tell you when I'm going to put an actual video out, but I'm definitely like working on some. So. All right. And remember, I did put out a Substack piece, uh, the fatigue of political rhetoric and media check on com. I've got other articles on there that you can check out and hopefully, uh, you know, I'll have some more uh, intellectual pieces soon because obviously, you know, you got to keep your giga chat up as well. Right. Uh, make sure to go to my website, amedmali.com. Sign up for my email list for the latest updates. Uh, as always, you know, my uh, merch is at uh, ZBigDogZ, um, Etsy.com slash shop slash ZBigDogZ. Right. Okay, Ashton, I get it. But <laughs> it's it's just such a awesome random merch, name. Right? No, we, we have awesome merch. And and remember, you can check out the show on Rumble, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Remember to like, comment, share the show. And uh obviously if you had anything to to you know crap on Garen for, uh as he's saying, he's gonna get a lot of that. But you know, he will again. I mean, I I Garen, you know, you're supposed to service these people 24-7 if they have any sort of, you know, <laughs> needs uh in the in the comment section. So I hope you stick to that. Uh and remember, guys, that's civil offense is the key to winning. Thank you.